The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. First Timothy, if you want. Uh, but fair warning, I'm going to be jumping uh, a little bit. And actually, I'm going to start in, uh, in Genesis this morning, believe it or not. Um, listen, I want to do something important before we get even to our text, before I read it. I'm just going to read it here in a second. Um, we're going to talk about something that is so important. And... Um, in so many ways, I feel like we can't even really comprehend how important it really is. And so I want to start with something first and ask you this. When you think of false teaching, what do you think of? Um, when you think of a false teacher, what comes to your mind? For some of you, you go to the extreme and you think of like crazy like cult leaders that you see in documentaries and all of that, um, telling their followers crazy things, making up crazy things, misleading them. You think of the extreme, but... And those are very much examples of false teaching. Don't hear me wrong. Um, but false teaching is not always that extreme. It's not always that obvious. It's not always the cult leader. And church, false, false teaching is anything and everything that pulls us away from the revealed word of God. It's, it's anything, and, 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 and it could be bold and obvious can also be very subtle. Um, false teaching is coming up with an idea, um, yes, that contra that's contrary to scripture, that uh, coldly rejects this, yes, of course. But it's also coming up with ideas that just try to take this and slightly modify it. Add a little bit to the top, take away a little bit from the bottom. Um, I think it might help, and the reason I want to start in Genesis even before we get to First um, Timothy is I think it might help to look at the first false teacher as we look at a text about false teaching. And um, back in Genesis 3, if you remember, we have this crafty little crazy serpent um, who says to the woman, um, did God actually say... Did God actually say you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? So he starts out there questioning um, the word of God, questioning it. Did he actually? Um, did he say? So that, that's kind of a subtle. And uh, we read in, in Genesis 3, the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of that tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant, he's not done yet. Um, false teachers are not satisfied with that answer. And so the serpent pushes harder and says, but the serpent says, you will not surely die. Okay, subtlety is now being lost, and this is a direct lie. Direct, false, lie. Um, nah, he didn't say that. Then, the serpent questions something else. First, he says, did he actually say that? No, he didn't. Then, he, then verse five says, 
God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are gonna be open. He doesn't want that. You're gonna be like him. He doesn't want that, knowing good and evil. And so he starts with a questioning of the word of God, but then he moves into questioning God's character and questioning God himself. Like, you know, if he said that, how good could he be? Um, this is false teaching. The serpent is a prototype of a false teacher. And, and here's the thing, false teaching, it started in the garden. It, it, it has continued through human history. It has continued through church history. I want to make the argument today that this is still the greatest faith, um, uh, threat we face as the church today, still. Um, now, our text today is going to take us uh, forward in history. And we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into this threat of false teaching, into this threat of false teachers and the importance for us as the church to hold true and, and, and to hold, cling to the sound word of God. And so let me read our text together. This is 1 Timothy. We're only going to be in three short verses today. 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5. It says this. <clears throat> if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and a constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth um, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Okay. If you, if you have your, your text there, um, that first verse again, it says, um, if anyone teaches a different doctrine. As I looked at this text this week, I was kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I nerd out on weird things, so forgive me. But this is not a normal word. This uh, uh, teaches a different doctrine is actually one big old nasty word that's never used anywhere else other than in Christian writings and only in two other places in the New Testament, both by Paul, both right here in this letter. This is like a Paul special. It's a big old nasty word that he has created. You know how sometimes we can create words because we need a word to fit what we're, that's kind of what happens here in the Christian world. This word is created um, and, and it means to teach something contrary to the standard instruction to give a divergent or divisive instruction. The reason I bring this up is because this isn't just a different doctrine. Like here's plan A, this is B, Red, blue, it's not that. What we see here is a doctrine that is in contrast. It is opposing, it is different. Paul is pointing to the fact that we have been given the words and the teachings of Jesus. We've been giving, given his instruction. We've been given what we're about to see later is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We've been given this. And that doctrine that has been delivered to us is not lacking. In other words, it's not like incomplete and we need to just add a little bit to it. It's not lacking. It's not insufficient. It's certainly not up for us to take it and go, I don't like that. Let's change it. We've been given it. And Paul is pointing to this faith once for all delivered to the saints, the word of God, the word of Christ, the way of Jesus. And he's saying the word of God is sufficient. 
It is complete. It is not lacking. We do not add to it, take away from it, or modify it. And by the way, that is still true today. The word of God, we're going to talk about this a lot, is sufficient. It is complete. It is not lacking. It is not ours to take away from, to add to, or to take things we don't like, change them a little bit so we like them a little more. We contend for it. We stand by it, stand on it, proclaim it, and trust it. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And Paul points to the fact that um, he uses the word agrees, teaching that agrees with the sound words of Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness. And so what is false teaching? Well, false teaching is anything that deviates or differs from this. Anything added to, taken away, modified, changed, whatever. False teaching is any question that makes you say, did God actually say that? Okay, I see it, but did he actually mean that? Surely God couldn't have meant it like that. Does that not sound familiar? False teachings, just like in the Garden of Eden, will cause us to question God's word, and then not that far after, start to question God himself. And we lead us to deviate. And just like the Garden of Eden, the consequences of this are deadly still. When we, if you think about this, when we sacrifice this, like as the church, if we just say, okay, this feels outdated. So we're gonna put this aside. We're going to close it. We're gonna set it here. I wanna ask, like, what are we left with? What? Are we left with? We might think that closing this might be better for us to engage our culture and to not be weirdos. We might think that closing this keeps us relevant for a little longer. We might think that we close this just because we now know better. Um, but what are we really doing when we do this? We are actually destroying the very foundation we have. As the church, we are destroying our foundation. We are blowing it up. It's like we're building a house and in the middle of it, we're just blowing up the foundation. That's what we're doing when we close this. Um, let me pick on something. Let me pick on the sexual revolution for just a moment. Some of your ears were like, now I'm listening. Um, it blows my mind when I stop and I think about this. When I think about how quickly church leaders or churches um, are running to meet the, the needs and the requests and, of this sexual revolution, when I see churches, church leaders who seem so quick to do this, um, it, I need to stop doing that. I'm going to lose my place. Um, it... Um, it blows my mind. And it's not just on side issues. It's like central issues of, of God's design for humanity. That's like central. Um, God's institution of marriage and design for gender, sexuality. And when I see church leaders, church members, it's like they're in the garden saying, oh, did God actually say that? Okay, but did he actually mean it? Oh, but if he did mean it, is he good? It's the same Genesis 3, prototype false teacher. And the thing that blows my mind is that just like in the garden, we seem to be so quick to grab hold of it, so
so quick to take the teachings, that the biblical teachings, the Bible that we have stood on for thousands of years, how quick we are to take it, close it, throw it out the window because of a revolution that is not even nine years old. This blows my mind how quick we are to do this. It blows my, my mind how crazy this is, but that is what false teaching is and does. That is the result. It will cause us to exchange our firm foundation for a revolution that is nine years old. It just, it doesn't, it's like exchanging rock for sand. It just, it doesn't make sense. And in our case with the sexual revolution that we're in, like, wow, is the sand even shifting? Like if you, it's hard to keep up. And if you are keeping up with it today, you're left behind tomorrow. It's just how fast it's moving. It keeps moving like shifting and and falling sand. And the sexual revolution is just one example of this. I pick on it because it's so easy to pick on in in this case. But false teaching is alive and it is active and it is still a threat to deviate, to change, to modify. And the consequences of doing that are still just as deadly. Um, I'll say it like this. Churches that are built, I'm gonna do it one more time, on this being closed do not last long. That's what is at stake here. And our call is to cling to this opened, um, to be content with this and to stand on this. But here in our text, we see a shift now, and, and we'll get back into it, from false teaching in general to false teachers. Um, and so we have to ask as we read this, like what's at the root of false teaching? And so let me read our text again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, that big nasty word squished together that doesn't agree with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness. Verse four, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul is so direct. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspension, suspicions um, and a constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth and imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So let me pick that apart, verses four and five. What's at the heart of false teaching? What's at the heart of false teachers? First and foremost, it's pride. Um, You see this in verse four, the heart of a false teacher is the heart of pride. He is puffed up with conceit. It's pride language. Um. And when we stop and think about this, it actually gets really obvious. It's like, this is a no-brainer. But when we think back to the garden, that did God actually say that? Did God actually mean that? And if he did, well, is God actually good? When you think about that, and hearing all of that, how did the woman respond? Well, in verse six, she sees the tree was good for food, delight for the eyes, desired to make one wise. She sees all that, and she takes it, eats it, gives it to her man who was with her, and he ate it too. What happened here? Pride happened here. What I, what I mean by this is it was pride that led her to believe that I know better. Like, I, I hear you, God, 
but I know better. What kind of arrogance and, and conceit would lead a person to think that he or she knows better, knows more than an all-knowing creator? That is the highest level of pride that could ever exist. And here's the thing, there's nothing new under the sun because that's exactly what we do. That's at the heart of false teaching. It's at the heart of false teachers. Pride is at the core. It was pride that led Lucifer to fall, Ezekiel 28, 17. It was pride that led Lucifer to tempt them in the garden. It was pride that led the woman and led the man to eat, and it's still pride, the core of all false teaching and at the core of all false teachers. For the church in um, Ephesus, there were false teachers coming in, puffed up with pride and arrogance, portraying as though they knew the answers, that they know the deeper things, the wise things. Um, and it was pride that led many in the church to follow after them. Listen, scripture is clear. Pride goes before the fall. And pride is still at the core of false teaching that we face today, that we would see scripture say, yeah, I see that, but God, we know better now. We've evolved. We know better than what God has said in his word. We know better. I'll pick again on the sexual revolution. We know better. Pride. It's pride at the core of, and sadly, it's not just pride. I want to move quickly to the second thing, which is tacked onto it in our text, ignorance. It's not just pride. It is ignorance. We see he is puffed up with conceit, and what else? And understands nothing. They might look like they understand. They may look like they got it figured out. They may look like they have all the answers and everything fits and it's awesome in their world. But that's prideful. And they do not know. They are not know-it-alls. They are people who know nothing, who are portraying as, they, they, as though they know everything. There's a difference. And that's what we see here. Genesis, back, at, back in, in the garden. The serpent said to the woman, you're not surely gonna die. Again, that is a straight up lie. Just cold lie. This would bring death. And in verse five, for God just knows that when you eat of it, your eyes, you're gonna be like him, knowing good and evil. So the first part was a straight up lie and the second part of it hints at truth. Isn't that the way false teaching is? It's always messy the man and woman, they would know evil. That part was right. They would experience sin. That part was right. And so again, the woman, it looks good. Food, delight to my eyes, desire to make one wise. So she takes it, eats it, gives it to her man who was with her and he eats. There was the prideful aspect of this response that I know better. Um, but then there was the simple fact that they were just wrong, ignorant, they were wrong about the fruit that they were about to eat in the garden. They were ignorant. They were wrong about what it would do and what would happen when sin overtook them. And when now there's death and pain and thorns and sweat and tears and pain and childbirth and list war. They had no idea. They were ignorant. They knew nothing. They had no clue. This is what false teaching does. This is what false teaching is. 
in pride. They may look like they know, but they do not know better than God. And there is a raging ignorance that is involved in this. I'm gonna pick on the sexual revolution one more time and then I'm getting off of it. In pride, we might say that we think we know better. We might say that we think we know better than God now. That's the pride side. But here's the, 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 the reality is we do not. And there is this unbridled ignorance that we see today in our culture that as created beings, we shake our fists at God and say, we know better. We now know, creator, what's best for us. This nine-year-old revolution has told us, and we now know, eternal God. But as time will reveal, this is sinking sand, it's, it's ignorance, and so with all clarity and gentleness, I wanna say without hesitation, we do not know better than God. I do not know better than God. You do not know better than God. And we as created beings, as we look up at our God and take his revealed word, close it, push it aside and say, I know better and deviate from it, subtract or change. At the core, what that is, is pride and it is ignorance. Same as what we see in our text. Because this is, and that's a dangerous combination, by the way. So dangerous. It was dangerous then. It's dangerous today. Pride, ignorance. Let's go to the next one. Verse four, we see another one. Um, puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. And he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So it's pride, it's ignorance, and then this sense of provocation, provoking. Um, just as the serpent was seeking to provoke the woman in the garden, false teachers provoke the church. There is an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarreling this love of arguments and passion for throwdowns. Um, and the last thing, the last thing that a false teacher wants is for there to be joy and unity and to be a content in the gospel and the gospel alone. That's the last thing, the last thing. Um, and so instead you poke and you pick and you provoke. It's the heart of false teacher. And, and that spirit's still alive and active today. I don't even think I need to defend that statement. But it's that stirring of the pot. It's, uh, did God actually say that? Did God actually mean that? Stir, stir, stir. Cause discontentment, cause doubt, cause fear. So I picked on the sexual revolution. Um, I wanna pick on another modern example. Let's take politics. Because my goal is to make every single one of you angry today. No, I'm joking. I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm... <laughs> Um, but regardless of which way you vote, listen, we are um, about to see a strategy that's gonna unfold in our nation. We're coming into election year. Here we go, right? Um, and over the course of this next year, we're gonna see the strategy of provocation. We know what this looks like, where sides will pick and poke and jab, cause doubt, fear, unrest, cause discontentment, and we're gonna get a whole nation worked up and whoo, we're gonna feel it, like we're gonna feel this because we're, we're in it, it's our culture and we're gonna get angry and bothered and passionate. That's what every election year is like, um, but we're coming into one. Um, and that craziness is a bit 
um, like a, a little example of what false teachers do in the church. There is a working up, riling up that goes into this. Get them riled up, discontent, angry. There's an unhealthy craving for controversy. It's like you're hungry for it. Quarreling, producing envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. That's the goal, false teaching. Teaching outside of this does not lead to unity, peace, or shalom. Sometimes I hear the argument that the most loving thing we can do is to put this aside and just love. Um, that's not loving, and it doesn't lead to unity. It doesn't lead to shalom or flourishing. Um, that's not what false teaching does. False teaching leads to, as this text says, envy, dissension, slander, suspicions, constant friction. It makes us crazy. Now, pride, ignorance, provocation, last one from this text is selfishness. Um, if you notice that last line, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Well, whose gain is that? Who's gaining here? Um, is it a gain for the church? Is it a gain for the glory of God? Is it a gain for the body? Eh, no, it's a gain for the false teacher. They're the ones gaining. They benefit in the short term through power and popularity sets that this is selfishness. Who is to gain from false teaching? It's not the church, it's not the people, it's the false teacher. That's who wins. Even in that though, that win, that gain is short term. It's pride, ignorance, provoking, selfishness. That's at the heart of false teaching. It's at the heart of false teachers. We've touched on this already, but I wanna bring this out again. And what's the result of all of that? Is it kumbaya, shalom, we all love each other? Um, no. In the garden, it wasn't. In the garden, it was death, pain, tears, pain in childbirth, uh, sweat, sickness, murder. That happened just right after. It's a separation from God and a booting out of the garden, okay? That was it. All of that came as a result of false teaching. Well, what about now? What's the result of it now? When false teachers come in, what is the result? Well, look at our text. I'm just gonna pull out a few of these words. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels. We see envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. How about that? Like controversy, quarrels, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, depraved minds, and, de and um, deprived of the truth. That is what is left in the wake of this. You may think we're being open-minded, being relevant, being tolerant, but as we walk this route and we look backwards, what do we see? We see all of this. When the church gets over to this and closes this up, gives over to the pride and gives over to the selfishness and the provoking and the ignorance. It's controversies and quarrels and envy and suspicions and constant nasty friction, depraved minds, deprived of the truth. We see all that like back here. That's why this matters so much. That's why 
Paul's so clear that we need to guard ourselves in this and against this from happening. This matters. Our, our life and vitality and health as a church hinges on this. Um, I have two questions that I want to ask and result of it, like out of this is, what's your calling, question number one, as an individual in this? As a child of God, like what are you called to do with a text like this? And then question number two is, what's our calling as a church? Like together, how do we respond to a text like, like this? Um, we have this calling both individually and together. And so I told you I'm gonna have you jump. This is the last jump I'm making today. Um, turn with me. I started you in Genesis. We're going almost clear to the end to Jude. Go with me to the book of Jude for our final destination uh, this morning in your Bibles. Um, there is absolutely nothing new under the sun. And what I'm about to read in Jude, it's like it was written directly to us today. I can think of no better point of application than this text, than what Jude has to say. So in, in the face of false teaching and false teachers, Jude says this in verse three, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what should we do? Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is our calling. In the face of pride and ignorance and provoking and selfishness, in the face of division, slander, suspicion, and constant friction, in the face of all of that, as Jude says, who have creeped in, snuck in, unnoticed, perverting the grace of God into sensuality, denying all the way and commands and teachings of Jesus. In the face of all of that, what do we do? We contend. We contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. To contend means that we exert crazy intense effort on behalf of something. That's what to contend for it means. And so Paul is calling us calling you to exert intense effort to protect and defend and proclaim the truth of the faith. Not a new truth or a new novel idea, but the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We cling to this even when we face pressure to bend, to change, to modify, to add, to leave out. We stand on it. Now, Let's start with the church side of it. Remember, this letter was written to Timothy, who was an elder pastor of, a, of this church in, in Ephesus. And it's really important that we understand that because as a pastors, elders, leaders in the church, we have a part to play. We protect and proclaim the gospel. In fact, our top responsibility as pastors is not to grow this church. The top responsibility for pastors is not to start movements and save people. It's not any of that. The, the, it's not church growth strategies. It's not being trendy so we can reach and be relevant. It's not anything like that. Listen, God builds his church. He does that. That's his, God saves people. He does that. Like, he, that's his job. As a faithful pastor, elder, as a faithful church leader, it's our responsibility to proclaim and protect the gospel 
and to shepherd the people who get brought in. That's it. So this letter written to Timothy, reminding him as a leader, protect, proclaim the gospel. God builds his church, so pastor, protect it. God saves people, so pastor, shepherd, okay? But don't miss this. We also see in Jude and in our text in 1 Timothy, the role of proclaiming and protecting the gospel. It's not only reserved for pastors and elders and church leaders. This is your call as a Christian, as a member of the church. This is your call. It says, beloved, contend for the faith. You're beloved. Or if you're old school, beloved. It's you, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Church, we are contenders. You are a contender. How are we to contend? So I wanna send us out with a little bit, um, three little nuggets of application for us as we leave. How are we to live this out, walk this out? How are we to contend? Number one, we are only able to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints if we know the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're gonna start at the basics here. Um, it's hard to hold to something if you don't know what it is. And uh, that means that we come to this and we sit under the faithful teaching of this. It means that we grow in this. Uh, too many times, just to be honest here, I feel like we think we're contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints when in reality, we are more passionate to defend our preferences. And we confuse the two. We confuse the two. Why do we confuse the two? Is it because we're evil? Well, yeah, you are a sinner, but that's not what I'm getting at. The reason we confuse the two is because often we don't know the difference. We don't know. We don't know what we're contending for. We need to know the faith once for all delivered to the saints in order to contend for it. That's number one. Know it. So if you're here, get into this. This is why we do what we do um, here. Okay, number two. Um, we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints when we are content with the faith, faith once for all delivered to the saints. Here's what I mean. When we stop looking for the next thing, pursuing those hidden and deeper things. Every heresy starts with that, by the way. And when we instead come back to the thing, and find our contentment in the gospel. Um, I've said this before, and I will say it again and again and again. Um, the mark of true Christian maturity is how content and overwhelmed and overjoyed you are with the gospel of Jesus. That's the mark of maturity. Sometimes we think that, um, you know, we need to know the deeper things. But listen, the mark of immaturity... <laughs> One of, the, one of the defining marks of immaturity is the continual pursuit of something else. The next thing, the next new way of thinking and the next new whatever, um, the next new teaching or next new teacher. Brother or sister, if you find yourself continually longing for a new insight, that longing, it may feel like you're growing and maturing. You're not. Stop it. Come back. And that's the mark of danger. Remember the serpent's temptation in the garden. God knows if you eat it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know. You're going to know. In other words, new information. Come get it. 
You don't know it now. You will, though, if you go. There's something different. There's something more for you than God was going to give you. He was holding out on you. So let me tell you what that is. Does that sound familiar? This is the heart of false teaching. Um, and so Paul says, in fact, I'll, I'll read earlier in 1 Timothy, um, remain at Ephesus so that I may charge certain persons not to teach any other different doctrine. There's that word that he made up again. And then listen, nor devote themselves to myths or endless genealogy. Those are all those extra things. Paul's saying, stop this madness and come back. So stop promoting speculations rather than a stewardship that's from God that is by faith, Paul says. So if you find yourself continually longing for more and deeper insights, come back to this and find your satisfaction and joy in Jesus. And if that is not enough, rinse and repeat. Keep doing it. Keep coming back because this is both milk and meat. You don't graduate from this. The more you follow Jesus, the more overwhelmed you are by him. We contend for the faith when we know the faith. We contend for the faith when we're content with the faith. Third and lastly, um, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints does not mean that we are contentious for the faith. In other words, this does not mean, and we are not hiring for this position, by the way, uh, to have a church heresy hunter on our staff. Um, Contending does not equal hunting. Contending does not equal contentiousness. Being contentious may feel noble. It may feel mature. You may feel strong and bold. Um, And it might feel needed in some cases. But contending for the faith does not mean that you need to walk through your life on a hunt, smelling anything that smells off so that you can blast them, cancel them, and do it publicly so that no one ever has to listen to them again. Leave friendships, leave communities. Right? This is not what it means to contend in no way, shape, or form. Um, quarreling is actually the mark of the false teachers, not the contenders. You may feel like contending, but church, that ain't contending, that's being contentious. There's a big difference. Um, and if you have any question about this, you can ask any pastor who has ever pastored for more than two weeks. They will know there is a difference between contending and contention contentiousness. There's a difference. A contender means that we exert effort, to go back to that word, to protect and guard the gospel. And we are content in the gospel. And it is enough for us. And we protect that. To be contentious is to look for a fight. To look for some quarreling. Quarreling seems to be the mark of these false teachers, doesn't it? Not those contending. Um, we contend by engaging. So when you, have, when you see a brother and sister, let's get practical here, that's going, eh, you think is going off the path, what do you do? Well, with love and with care and with truth and with grace, and let me say this, prayer and then more prayer and prayer and then prayer and then pray and then make sure you pray. Right. You engage. Um, so that they come back to the gospel. Restoration. 
not so that you have wounded them to where they'll never come back to a church again. With love and with grace, but with truth, we contend. There is a balance here. There takes wisdom here. But so many times in our attempt to contend, we fall into the trap of quarreling. And our call is to humbly and boldly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So to contend means, point number one, know it. To contend means, point number two, be content with it. And to contend means that we stop confusing, contending with fighting. That's our call. Brothers, sisters, we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints for the glory of God and for the good of the church. This is how we contend together. This is how we walk this out.